Hey, everyone. Just to note that this is part two of a three-part documentary series. You can definitely listen to this episode on its own, but you'll get a bit more out of it if you start with part one. This episode of Fried Egg Stories is brought to you by Precision Pro Golf Rangefinders. I don't need to tell you that Father's Day is coming up, June 19th, but I do need to tell you that Precision Pro is having a Father's Day sale. Go to precisionprogolf.com and save up to $40 off their award-winning rangefinders. Swing with confidence, hit more greens with Precision Pro Golf. Fried egg requires a different technique. What you need to do is actually square the face so it'll dig down underneath that bad lie and propel that ball right out onto the green. Here's the thing, playing out of a buried lie in a bunker is completely different than playing out of a nice, clean lie in a greenside bunker. You need to be aggressive on any shot, whether it's sitting cleanly or it's a a fried egg. Well, we've all faced it, the dreaded fried egg. It's not to be feared, though. It's actually a pretty easy shot to hit. Very nice, and a mite better than our first car. The movie stars Ann Baxter and Glenn Ford are on a soundstage in Hollywood, pretending to drive a Cadillac. Through the windows, a simulation of fog is visible. But just in case you didn't notice it, the dialogue refers to it repeatedly. You ought to pay a guy for driving in soup like this. This road here. In a bit of foreshadowing, there's a cut to a semi-truck being closely followed by a bus. How's the fog? It's getting worse. I'm glad there aren't many fools on the road like the Hogan's. Hogan's are fools. They're smart. Very smart. They've got a new home to go to. The movie is called Follow the Sun. And this part of it, the crash, is fairly accurate. On February 2nd, 1949, a Greyhound bus headed from Dallas to El Paso, Texas, tried to pass a freight hauler in a heavy fog, and it pulverized a black Cadillac sedan belonging to Ben Hogan, the reigning U.S. Open and PGA champion. Ben's wife, Valerie, was in the passenger seat, and as the headlights of the bus bore down, he leapt protectively across her lap. The Greyhound bus slammed into Hogan's car with such force that it drove the steering wheel back into the back seat. That's Ed Groover. I'm the author of Bringing the Monster to Its Knees, the story of Ben Hogan and the 1951 U.S. Open. Now, if Hogan hadn't thrown himself across uh, the front seat to protect Valerie, he likely would have been impaled by his own steering wheel and you know, probably would have died at the scene. His car is driven off the road, tumbles down an embankment, Valerie is able to escape the car, but Ben is trapped in there. He had a broken collarbone, pelvis, ankle, and rib. The left side of his face, which had struck the dashboard, was a bloody mess. Still, it looked like he would be okay. But two weeks later, a pair of blood clots were creeping toward Ben's lungs and threatening his life. A surgeon was flown in from New Orleans to perform a dangerous experimental procedure. And once again, Ben survived. But that was really the only good news. Because the doctor said, you know, forget about playing championship golf again. You know, you may not even walk again. 
Of course, there's a reason a movie was made about all of this. Hogan did come back. And he didn't just play. He didn't just win. He dominated. It was such a powerful story that it not only turned Hogan into a living legend, but also, in a kind of roundabout way, changed the direction of golf architecture history. I'm Garrett Morrison, and this is Fried Egg Stories. Today, we continue our series, The Open Doctor and His Monster. In the first installment, we described Robert Trent Jones's modernization of the South Course at Oakland Hills. This episode focuses on Ben Hogan's encounter with that new form of golf architecture at the 1951 U.S. Open. We look at how this battle between man and monster immediately became a kind of myth, and how that myth has shaped what we imagine a championship golf course to be ever since. Now, to understand why Hogan's performance at the 51 Open had such an impact, you have to know something about his life story. The first part of that story, his childhood, turned out to be ripe for mythologizing. But when it was happening, it was just sort of sad and difficult. His father was Chester Hogan, a blacksmith from West Texas who likely had what we now call bipolar disorder. In 1921, Chester, his wife, and their three kids, including Ben, moved to the city of Fort Worth, partly to find suitable mental health care. But a year later, during an argument with his wife, Chester shot himself in the torso with a 38 revolver. Ben was nine years old. There was a question whether he was actually in the room when his father committed suicide, but I talked with Ben's niece, Jackie Hogan, and she said that, no, it was her father who had been in the room, not Ben. But Ben was in the house when it happened. So here you have a young boy, you know, fatherless, you know, has to grow up the hard way, you know, has to grow up scraping for everything he could get. So by the time Ben is in fourth grade, he's hawking newspapers at a local railroad depot to earn extra money for his family. Occasionally, those papers mention the brilliant amateur golfer from Georgia, Bobby Jones, as well as the flamboyant professional, Walter Hagen. Later, Ben starts caddying at the nearby Glen Garden Country Club at 65 cents a loop. That's where he meets Byron Nelson. Nelson was favored by the other golf club members at that time. Nelson was considered to be a little more refined, a little more, you know, golf club-like. A little more likable, <laughs> perhaps. Hogan was more of a rough, you know, rough-hewn character. Ben's personality has been shaped by hardship. He's solemn and moody, and he's a survivor, self-driven, and exacting in his standards for himself. And so he, no matter what he was doing, he would strive not only to be good at it, but to be as perfect or as near perfect as he could be. I think the story that illustrates that is that he told a writer once that he had dreamt that he had holed the first uh, 17 holes on a course, but then uh, had lipped out on the 18th and woke up and it was really angry. And the writer said, you know, so you had 17 holes in one and were angry at the 18th. And Hogan was like, sure, I wanted all 18. Perfectionists don't always play well with others. And Ben finds that he's most comfortable on his own. And I think that's one of the reasons why he got into golf, because it afforded him many, many solitary hours on the golf course where he was just, you know, one man in pursuit of perfection. He had no teammates. Uh, I remember a quote from Sam Snead, who uh, saw Hogan sitting by himself at a luncheon once at a golf club. And he said, oh, look, there's Ben Hogan sitting with all his friends. 
Ben turns pro in 1930, right at the start of the Great Depression. He's just 17, hasn't graduated from high school, and like many people in many professions, he struggles to make ends meet for much of the decade. He's got plenty of power in a swing, especially considering he's 5'8 and not burly, but he battles a persistent hook, the ball diving out of the air and to the left. His former colleague, Byron Nelson, has quicker success on the pro tour. So does Sam Snead, the long ball hitter from West Virginia. Nelson, Snead, and Ben were all born in the same year, 1912. But Ben just takes a bit longer to come into his own. After World War II, Nelson retires, and Ben is starting to figure out his game. He wins the PGA Championship in 1946, and in 1948, torches Riviera Country Club to win his first U.S. Open. Yeah, he had really reached the pinnacle of the golf world just prior to his accident. What was it like for him to live after the accident? It was said that he never lived another day without pain. Walked with a limp, you know, struggled with uh, staying warm. He was constantly cold because of the poor circulation of the the blood in his, his lower body. Uh, so he would wear sweaters out in a golf course in the summer months, you know, just trying to stay warm. You know, he would lean on his golf clubs, basically turning them into a, like a cane of sorts while he was on the course. And his shoulder ached constantly. Uh, that affected his swing. He was near blind in one eye. That affected his putting. But one of the things that almost benefited him was that by constant exercise to repair his broken body, he became you know, a heavier, stronger man than he had been before the accident. Before the accident, he weighed around 135 pounds, which is why they called him Bantam Ben. After the accident, he was a solid you know, 160 pounds or so. They said he you know, looked like up close, he looked like a solid middleweight. Wow. And uh, Sam Snead said that always, in his opinion, that had helped Hogan with his golf game, that he could drive greater distances after the accident than before. Incredibly, just 15 months after a bus turned his Cadillac into an accordion, Ben Hogan wins the 1950 U.S. Open at Marion Golf Club. How did he do it? Sheer dedication and uh, sheer unwillingness to believe that he couldn't do it. He made it a point to prove people wrong when they said that he couldn't do this or couldn't do that. This is when Hogan fully becomes a mythic figure. Americans see their story in him. Like Hogan, America has been through trauma, World War II, the Great Depression. And like Hogan, many Americans believe, or want to believe, that they're coming back stronger than ever. Yeah, I think, I think there's a definite connection there. And I think people did see in Hogan the personification of the ability to come back from devastating circumstances. He was the comeback story of the 1950s. And again, like you said, that was just five years after the end of World War II and basically just a decade removed from the Great Depression. So this country had been through a lot and Hogan personified a lot of that. And, and people connected with him about that. Before the accident, before his comeback, a lot of people had difficulty relating to Hogan because of his kind of withdrawn solitary personality. Post-accident Ben Hogan, his great comeback story, you know, a lot of people could connect with that because of what they were going through in their daily lives and because of what this country had come back from.
Season two of Fried Egg Stories is made possible by Precision Pro Golf. All right, I told you at the top of the episode about the sale going on right now and through June 19th at precisionprogolf.com. Lots of great deals there at the moment, but I want to zero in on one in particular, and that's $30 off the NX9 Slope Rangefinder. The NX9 Slope happens to be my rangefinder, and it's really fantastic. I especially love the pulse vibration feature. Basically, you get this little buzz when you lock onto the flagstick, and it gives you this serene sense of confidence that you're getting the right number. And that's what it's all about. Confidence in the club you've chosen and the shot you're playing. Another benefit you get with a Precision Pro rangefinder like the NX9 Slope is industry-leading customer service. You'll talk to an actual person quickly and get any information or help you need. So if you're looking to step up your game or get an awesome gift, check out the Father's Day sale through June 19th at precisionprogolf.com. Swing with confidence, hit more greens with Precision Pro Golf. A few months after winning at Marion, Hogan is advising on the Hollywood version of his comeback story. Meanwhile, his next opponent is emerging outside of Detroit, Michigan. The South Course at Oakland Hills, host of the next U.S. Open, is undergoing a major renovation. The old Donald Ross design is being rebunkered, narrowed, and toughened by Robert Trent Jones. Jones's theory is that the modern game demands a modern form of architecture, and that traditional U.S. Open venues need to be revised in order to stand up to the likes of Ben Hogan. And he got to demonstrate that philosophy to his heart content at Oakland Hills. That's Dick Howding, a member of Oakland Hills and the de facto club historian. And he says that even as Jones and his crew are in the midst of their work in late 1950, word starts to get around that something big is happening at the South Course. The rumor was just going like hot, you know, spreading all over the country fast. And they had literally, they had guys who had never seen Oakland Hills, who had never, never been there, didn't know what was going on, hear these rumors. And they were calling the PGA, these, these pros, and saying, this is an outrage, what's going on at Oakland Hills. At one point, Joe Dye, the executive director of the USGA, tells Jones to stop what he's doing. Stop everything. Stop everything. And he and a bunch of his people from the USGA came over to Oakland Hills to examine what the hell is, what's going on? Because we're hearing this from everybody, you know? And they looked around and it's like, well, nothing's going on. We're just, you know, doing the work that we all agreed to. So they keep going and finish the renovation. And in the spring of 1951, a number of pros play practice rounds at the course and their reactions are widely reported. Some are complimentary. Byron Nelson, for one, says positive things, but several players make it known that they are not happy. Chief among them, Sam Sneed. Here's what he said. This is by far the toughest course for any Open I've played in. If this tournament wasn't the National Open, there wouldn't be many players sticking around this course. This place is a nightmare now. But then we might as well get used to it. We've got to play it, but we don't have to like it. Nonetheless, over his four practice rounds, Sneed reportedly shoots 281, one over. Now, he hasn't won the U.S. Open before. It's the only real gap in his resume. So the big question going into the tournament is whether this is Sneed's year, even if he hates the course. As for Ben Hogan, the defending champion, he's also critical of the New Oakland Hills. 
he played five practice rounds and he said, you know, after two rounds, I usually know exactly how to play a course and how I'm going to approach it. He said, I've played five rounds at Oakland Hills and I have no more idea now than when I started the first round how to play this course. Yet it's hard to tell what Hogan truly thinks of the course because he's so busy using the media to mess with his rival, Sneed. When Sneed blew his mind about the course, one of the things uh, Hogan did was uh, immediately predict that, oh yeah, I think that uh, Sam Sneed's gonna win this tournament. <laughs> and it was like just to play with his mind because Sneed knew that Hogan didn't have any good wishes for him in that tournament. Sneed tells reporters, don't believe a word of it. That's just Ben trying to get in everybody's heads like a swarm of wasps. But just because Sneed is aware of it doesn't mean it's not annoying to him. Everything Hogan was, Sneed wasn't, and vice versa. That's Ed Groover again. You know, Sneed was uh, everybody's pal. You know, he was the guy with all the, the funny jokes. He had the, the down-home drawl, and everybody loved him. And, you know, probably had the most natural golf swing of that era. Hogan, of course, his swing, as he said, was built out of the dirt. But what Hogan has is a higher level of mental wherewithal than almost any golfer before or since. And again, I think it goes back to some of that gamesmanship. I think Hogan knew full well prior to the 51 Open that he was kind of putting the onus on Sam by predicting that he was going to win it. And Sam wouldn't take the bait. He was like, I know what that little man is up to. <laughs> and here, here Hogan is the defending champion too. <laughs> and he's like, oh no, that other guy's the favorite. <laughs> yeah. And as all this chaos is happening, no one is enjoying it more than Robert Trent Jones. Trent Jones was very good at PR. And they were all so wound up by the time they got to Oakland Hills, they, they didn't know up from down. And there'd been a ton of PR generated. How would you say the course played during the first two rounds? How would you say Oakland Hills played for the field as a whole? Well, it played exceptionally difficult. That's Jim Hansen, the author of A Difficult Par a Robert Trent Jones biography. Day one, the average score was 78.8. That's you know almost nine over par. And the weather wasn't really bad you know, throughout any part of the tournament. The golfers were just beside themselves you know, with complaints about this Trent Jones redesign that it was you know, not what they had thought it was going to be. It was much more difficult. It's one of those things. you know. I, I shot 78, I shot 76, I shot 80. I should have done this instead of that. So now here we are trying to play it and it's not fair and it's, you know, it's making us look bad. And it was said that rather than the golfers playing the course, the course was playing the golfers. It really got into their heads. Hogan himself didn't blame the course for the round he shot. He shot 76, six over. And he said he made six real mistakes and he ended up six over. He would later call it the most stupid round of golf he had ever played. So he, he blamed it on him playing really stupid and, and making stupid mistakes. So he accepted the judgment of the course, you know, that he didn't deserve to be any better than that. Sam Sneed, on the other hand, shoots 71, one over, and finishes the day at the top of the leaderboard. But the next day... Second round, Sneed skies and shoots a 78. Yeah, he struggled. Um, and I think it comes back to some of those old bugaboos that Sam had about the U.S. Open. When his game started to go sideways, as it did in the second round at Oakland Hills, I think some of those, um, 
you know, problems from past opens probably crept into his mind. And it was like a here we go again attitude. And all he did is bitch about things like, you know, that the bunkers aren't raked. I landed in three bunkers and there's uh, foot marks I landed in because people didn't rake. It was like, you know, part of him was uh, the ability to whine when he wanted to. And by contrast, Ben Hogan now starts to step up his game. You know, shoots not a great round, but certainly better. Hogan brings down his, he's 73. And I think he's starting at that point to get a feel for the course, what he can do, what he can't do, you know, how to read it properly. But after 76 or 73, he's putting those together and he's saying, this is crap. You know, what am I going to do? The leader is the South African Bobby Locke, one of the greatest putters in the history of the game. And Hogan somehow has to make up five strokes on him over the next two rounds. He went to his, uh, his hotel that night and he was soaking his legs because he had to soak them in hot water after he played, you know, because of the accident. Sitting in that tub and he was telling Valerie, he said, I, I, I just don't know what the, what the hell I'm going to do. He said, to win now, I'd have to put together two rounds of 70. And he said, nobody can put together two rounds of 70 on that course. So back in 1951, the U.S. Open didn't finish on Sunday. Instead, the third and fourth rounds were both played on the same day. The final day was Saturday. It's 36 holes. They're playing, they're playing 36 holes on Saturday. And that, of course, was a grind, especially for someone like Hogan, you know, because he's just still coming off his automobile accident and so forth. And so 36 holes walking, you know, um, that's tough. You know, it's called Oakland Hills for a reason. It's very rolling terrain. And to have to tread that twice in one day, as Hogan did, I believe the, the walking distance of the course is seven miles. So that's 14 miles he's walking that day on shattered legs with a bad back, bad shoulder, using his cane for support at times because of the fatigue. But on Saturday morning in the third round, Hogan's game is in much better shape than his body. He finishes the front nine and three under. And then he, you know, his game goes sideways. He bogeys 14, double bogeys 15, misses a five-foot birdie putt on 16, and bogeys 17. So he goes four over on the back and posts a 71. He's just two shots behind the leaders, Bobby Locke and Jimmy Demerit. But he was real disappointed because he thought, you know, I need those two rounds of 70. And now I think I really have blown it. One of the writers who was at the tournament said that Hogan trudged off the course like a man who was condemned to die. He goes to lunch. He has the lunch apparently in complete silence. And is uh, basically lost in his own thoughts. People who were there told me that it just seemed that he was in his own zone, in his own little world there. wasn't really speaking to anyone. Uh, But of course, behind that anger and the silence, his mind was churning. He pictured every tee shot that he was going to have to hit in the afternoon round. And he decided, and this is, this is, this makes great drama. He sort of decided, well, I'm not going to play it safe anymore. You know, I think I figured out a way to beat this course. I have to attack it. And so he went out very decisively to play more aggressively. 
Uh, instead of trying to stay behind the flanking bunkers, he was going to go through them or he was going to go over them. Instead of playing for the fat part of the greens, he would go for the pins uh, and he was going to go down fighting. Uh, he was not going to surrender to the schemes of Jones' redesigned golf course. He was going to take this monster and bring it to its knees. He found his fighting spirit again. You know, whatever he, he had that allowed him to come back from all kinds of obstacles in his life, you know, dating back to his father's suicide, the difficulties of his early golf life, from the accident, everything. He was able to dig deep into that and came out for the fourth and final round and really started to take the course apart. Hogan's strategy and ball striking are immaculate. But the putts aren't quite falling yet. He goes out in 35, even par. Next up is the 10th hole, one of the most intimidating par fours in the world. From an elevated tee, it rambles over tilted, undulating ground before rising sharply to the green. Hogan leaves himself a two-iron approach, and he makes his best swing of the tournament. He said that second shot into the green, he said it, he said it went every inch of the way exactly as I dreamed it. And boom, he said, right then, everything clicked on 10. Everything clicked. He makes his four-foot putt on 10 and adds another birdie on 13. While he bogeys the long, tough 14th hole, he bounces right back on 15, stuffing a six iron to three feet. One of the caddies I spoke to who was there that day who was following Hogan said that he had never seen better shot making. It was just shot after shot, hole after hole. He was just making everything that he was setting out to do. On 16, after a 300-yard drive, Hogan hits a 9-iron to 4 feet, but misses the putt. Soon he stands on the 18th tee, 2-under on the day, 8-over on the tournament, and he surveys the massive finishing hole, which Robert Trent Jones converted from a par 5 to a par 4. It's a dogleg right, and in the drive zone, it kicks left, falls off to the left. And then you have to go uphill to a raised green that's shallow. It's the second smallest green on the course. Now, the whole thing is designed to play as a par five. Well, Trent Jones just added a bunch of bunkers on both sides of the drive zone, all along where your, your ball's going to kick down into them. And then he did nothing to make that green any larger. And he had them playing at, I guess, what the limit was then, or close to it, was four, 459. It was the longest par four on the course. The 18th hole played so hard in the first three rounds that the USGA decided to ease up on the players and move the tee forward. So in the fourth round, Hogan is able to do something that those familiar with the course thought was impossible. He pummels his drive over the fairway bunkers on the right, cutting the corner of the dogleg. He ends up with a downhill 15-foot birdie putt and just taps it, and the ball is gaining speed when it hits the back of the cup. And that was his 32 on the back, and that was a 67. So he knew he'd done it. You know, for Hogan to overcome the fatigue and the physical disabilities and to still be able to shoot that round of golf that he did, to shoot a 67 while, you know, suffering physically, you know, it really was a triumph, as they say, of the spirit, triumph of the will. And I mean, even even when uh, when they heard the cheer go up on 18, Bobby Locke famously said, turned around. And he said, "What the hell was that?" One of these guys, I don't know if they had walkie-talkies or what, 
reported to him. He said, well, Hogan just shot a, uh, a 67. And uh, what is it Bobby Locke said? Uh, Would he play all the holes? Hey everyone, just wanted to cut in here quickly to tell you about another Father's Day sale. This one is happening in the Fried Egg Pro Shop. Everything except for photography is 15% off right now through June 19th. There's a ton of good stuff, hats, shirts, new head covers, various accessories. You'll definitely be able to find something for the dad in your life or just for yourself. Might as well make this an excuse to get something from the Fried Egg Pro Shop. All right, proshop.thefriedegg.com, Father's Day sale, check it out. Now, another quirk of Open Saturday is that the leaders are not repaired for the final round. So when Hogan walks off the 18th green, the other contenders still have a ways to go. Bobby Locke and Jimmy Demerit were the 54-hole leaders, but both stumble in the final round. The far less famous Clayton Hafner, on the other hand, gives himself a chance. He ends up recording a 69, the second best round of the week, but he finishes two back. Sometimes I think about how history might have been different if Clayton Hafner, not Ben Hogan, had won the 1951 U.S. Open. Anyway, the point is, there's a big chunk of time between the end of Hogan's round and the end of the tournament. And the way Hogan spends this time turns out to be very significant. What he does, basically, is begin to shape the story of the 51 Open, the one we've been telling ever since. And this story is not about Hogan versus Hafner. It's about Hogan versus Oakland Hills. Hogan versus Robert Trent Jones. The thing to remember is that when he walked off that golf course, he was still in battle mode. He couldn't flip the switch and like, you know, be combative toward this course one second. And then as he's walking off it, just be totally, you know, reverse course and reverse his mindset and be like, you know, Mr. Happy-go-lucky. And he came off the green and he walked toward the clubhouse and he walked by my mother, who was very enthusiastic and highly supportive. That's Robert Trent Jones Jr., who was 11 years old in 1951 and not at Oakland Hills. But his mother, Robert Trent Jones's wife, Ione, was. And they knew each other well from golf circles with a small in-group at that time. And my mother said, Ben, I've just witnessed one of the greatest rounds. Congratulations on your winning. To which he said to her after having said almost nothing for 36 holes, Mrs. Jones, he knew her first name very well, which was Ione. Mrs. Jones, if your husband had to earn a living on the courses he designed, you'd be in the poorhouse and walked off. <laughs> so that that was that was family talk for about a year. <laughs> Hogan heads to the locker room, and there he tells reporters that he's never played a tougher course. A little later, Joe Dye presents him with a trophy and waits for a speech. Hogan hesitates. You know, then said the most, probably the most famous quote in golf history. I brought this course, this monster to its knees. That he brought this monster to its knees. You know, I'm glad I brought this course, this monster to its knees. I had always assumed that when Hogan said this, he was being somewhat tongue-in-cheek and, and basically complimenting Oakland Hills. But in the context of his F.U. attitude during and after this U.S. Open, I hear something different now. I hear defiance. And I also hear a bit of self-mythologizing. 
this course was a monster and only I was great enough to bring it to its knees. Hogan is elevating himself, but simultaneously, maybe unintentionally, he's elevating Oakland Hills and Robert Trent Jones. I think he legitimized what Trent Jones had done. Do you think he intended to do that? (laughs) I think by legitimizing it in that way, I think it makes his round even greater. If he had downplayed it and said, well, you know, I just showed that this course wasn't that tough, I think it would have delegitimized Trent Jones' work a little bit. But by emphasizing, yeah, that yes, this course, I'm saying now to everybody here that this course is a monster, it makes the course look good and it makes him look good in comparison. Guess what? I just beat it. I just brought it down. So at this moment, the myth of Ben Hogan and the myth of Robert Trent Jones become mutually reinforcing, and both men make the most of it. It makes, I mean, it makes Hogan even more Hogan in terms of his legend, but it makes Jones Jones. It makes Jones, although the moniker, the open doctor, does not really become coined until the early 60s, there's no question that Jones is, is really at the top of the pyramid when it comes to designing championship golf courses after Oakland Hills. So I'd argue that the legend of the 1951 U.S. Open has gone far beyond what actually happened that week. Consider, for instance, that in the previous year's U.S. Open, Hogan made the playoff at Marion Golf Club with a 72-hole score of 287, the same as his winning score at Oakland Hills. And yet, no one calls Marion the monster. Consider also, when you hear that Hogan shot 7-over in 1951, that one of the main changes Jones and the USGA made to the course was to reduce its par from 72 to 70. The 8th and 18th holes, both par 5s, were shortened, though not by much, and relabeled as par 4s. Is not changing the par to seven, from 72 to 70 just kind of tomfoolery? I mean, <laughs> you know, I, I, I sometimes say this was done very commonly at U.S. Open courses yeah. in the post-World War II era. And I'm like, you know, nothing has really changed about the difficulty of the course. Just the public image of it has changed in the sense that all of a sudden the scores to par are coming out higher. And so you can put that out to the public and say, hey, look what a difficult course this is. But it's really not any more difficult. You've just changed the number. If it was par 72, 288, he would have been one under. Yep. I mean, if how does the public react to somebody winning at seven over compared to winning at one under? Yeah, it is tomfoolery, but it's it's tomfoolery that certainly works in favor of the USGA and the architect in the sense that you know they've created this monstrous course where you know you can't the winner can't even shoot par, and that becomes the storyline. It still is the storyline, you know. So if you don't change it to par seventy from seventy two, the storyline's not quite as it's not quite as fierce. Look, no doubt. The renovated South Course at Oakland Hills was an extremely difficult golf course, and no doubt Hogan's victory was a remarkable achievement. But the fact that the 1951 U.S. Open lives on in the popular imagination has a lot to do with myth-making, or, to use the modern term, marketing, on the part of Ben Hogan and especially Robert Trent Jones. For Jones, the tournament is a public relations masterstroke. That much is clear as early as the trophy ceremony. 
Robert Trent Jones' uh, son, Trent Jones Jr., told me that his dad received a standing ovation. Normally, the president of USJ thanks the club, thanks the green superintendent, thanks the volunteers, gives the trophy to the winner and high amateur, and that was pro forma ceremonial conduct. And this is, these are all golf people. This is not television people. Television wasn't even involved. They spontaneously said, and the architect, and the architect. They appreciated what they had just witnessed. People enjoyed watching these golfers really have to use every facet of their game to cope with this course that Trent Jones had created. My dad was watching this, and they spontaneously gave him a standing O, and he walked forward somewhat embarrassed. Acknowledged it and thanked them and said, and with a hand wave and returned to the gallery. If you had to say what was the golden moment in Robert Trent Jones's life, you would have to say it's the summer of '51. What's very interesting in the history of golf course architecture is the relationship between architects and the media. That's Bradley Klein, a historian of golf architecture. And he argues that what really cemented Robert Trent Jones's status as the Open Doctor was an article published six weeks after the 51 Open. The article was called Lynxland and Meadowland, and the author was Herbert Warren Wind. Herbert Warren Wind, he struggled to establish himself as a writer, and he tried very hard through many iterations and freelance. And then he finally broke through in, um, I think it was 1948, with his monumental, uh, The Story of American Golf. But it wasn't until his profile of Robert Trent Jones in the August 1951 issue of The New Yorker that Herb Wynn broke through as the voice of American golf course architecture. The piece is essentially an extended, very extended, profile of Jones. It covers his childhood, his education, and his early career. It gives a glimpse of his family life in Montclair, New Jersey. It offers an overview of the history and practice of golf architecture. And it places Jones at the very apex of the profession. And what's very important about that article is it simultaneously made the reputation of Robert Trent Jones Sr. as the definitive architect of the post-World War II era. It established the monumentality of Oakland Hills as the tough the monster that chewed up and spit out these golf pros. And it established Herb Wynn's reputation as, as a the definitive critic of golf architecture. So simultaneously, three things are achieved in that one article. And immediately led to a Trent Jones getting work subsequently at Baltus Royal, at Olympic Club, Southern Hills, Inverness, Oak Hill. He becomes the Open Doctor as a result of that article. And soon, the Open Doctor was the best known, best paid golf architect in America. For decades, his position was dominant and his output overwhelming. Of course, Herbert Warren Wynn's article obviously wasn't the singular cause of all of this, but it played its role. About a decade later, Wind was a member at Sands Point Country Club, a lovely old course on Long Island designed by A.W. Tillinghast. It's on the North Shore of Nassau County, very close to the Gatsby area of uh, Manhasset. And uh, Herb used to go out there all the time with his golf bag and just sort of hit a few shots, and it was a very fussy player. Uh, it was a good golfer, too. But uh, in 1960, there was a, a discussion at the club to bring in 
the open doctor, the most famous golf course architect, to uh, modernize the golf course, make it tougher, deepen the bunkers, change the character, and take the old original Tillinghast design from, I think, 1927, and turn it into a Trent Jones course. And Herb Wynn hit the roof, and he stood up at a meeting, and he denounced the plan, and he thought it was a terrible idea, and he was very upset. They voted to go ahead with the plan. They changed the golf course. And the irony is that Herbwin was fulminating against a, a strategy of course renovation that he himself had championed in that article uh, a decade earlier. And why do you think Wind objected to that plan, given that he had expressed himself to be a fan of Robert Trent Jones? It's a, it's a great question. I wish I had asked him. It hadn't occurred to me. He he passed away, I think it was in 2005 or six. Herb Wynn was a little naive, I think, about a lot of things. Uh, he was he just wanted to be a writer. He he didn't really like being famous. It embarrassed him. I don't think he ever understood how influential he was. I have to say this. In all of the writing, and I've read almost everything that Herb Wynn has written on golf, I've never seen a critical word about anything. Uh, he was too much of a gentleman. When I went around with him at uh, Inverness in 1979, the golf course had just been through a major overhaul by George and Tom Fazio with four new holes that everybody thought were terrible. And privately, Herb Wind said something to me about, yeah, it's really too bad, but not a word of that in that long article that he wrote about uh, Hale Irwin's win. Not a single word. And I always felt like that was a, in retrospect, that was a, um, a limitation of his work. But by 1979, by that U.S. Open that Herb Wind did not write critically about, the tides were shifting in the world of golf course design. Some people had started to take a more skeptical stance toward the Open Doctor era, and a few were determined to move past it by looking at what had come before it. That's next on Fried Egg Stories. Fried Egg Stories is produced by me, Garrett Morrison, with transcript and editing help from Meg Atkins. The guests in this episode were Ed Groover, Dick Howding, Jim Hansen, Robert Trent Jones Jr., and Bradley Klein. Ed's book is called Bringing the Monster to Its Knees, and you can find Bradley's essay on Herbert Warren Wind in issue 13 of the Golfer's Journal. We'll be back on Friday with the third and final installment of The Open Doctor and His Monster. So see you then, and thanks for listening. <laughs>